It is really good to see you again today, and uh, like Jake said, we had a busy weekend here. Friday night was full to overflowing with a concert of praise and worship, brought many people from outside of our church family, and yesterday our church family and many others who knew and loved Debbie McElhaney were here yesterday afternoon. I might say if you were not here or if you didn't get the little booklet that we talked about yesterday out in the lobby right by the um, pallet wall, you'll see a table there with some flowers. There are cards that you can write a memory if you would like to share with Debbie's family what you can remember that is a blessing about her. And uh, there's also, uh, I think there should still be a little stack of the booklets out there as well. And as I thought about Debbie, even this morning, getting ready to go back to our series here on the Sermon on the Mount, I thought about how yesterday we talked about the impact she made in people's lives and how Christ had rescued her by taking her sins away and taking the normal Debbie and making her the supernatural Debbie, changing her so that Christ came to be at home in her heart. And then last week, one week ago, God took her home to heaven. And I was thinking, she lived in front of us the Beatitudes. We looked at those a few weeks ago, right? The, the Sermon on the Mount starts with those, blessed are those who are like Debbie McElhaney. She lived and modeled for us generosity, humility, joy, love, all of those virtues that uh, now we say, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace like Debbie. So, I take a deep breath, and I say that uh, last Sunday, Pastor Shep reminded us about Jesus' words in uh, Matthew 5, verse 20. Now, I might say the problem if there's a problem with us talking about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, is that he preached it at one time, and we're slicing it up into about 12 Sundays from now till Holy Week. So what that means is uh, we're, we're diving deep, but we may forget the context of what was said. So I remind you last week that there's a verse here that it seems a little odd, but it, it reads this way, Jesus says, I tell you that unless your righteousness, your standing before God, surpasses that of those Jewish leaders called the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you're not going to make it to heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you think about it, I mean, as he mentioned last week, when you hear the word Pharisee, right? That's the person you would think about who is ultra-righteous. And Jesus says, no, you got to beat them. Or do you? Or how do you? Right? And last week, Pastor John reminded us that the only way that this can happen is a different way. Could we call it an upside-down way or maybe an inside-out way? Here's a verse that one of the prophets in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, said would happen 
reflecting a future time to his time when God said, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Pastor John last week reminded us that the book of Jeremiah records God's words where he says, I will make a new covenant with my people, and here's his metaphor, I will write my laws on your hearts. How about that? That is what God's new humanity is all about. That's the huge difference. That's the way that our righteousness surpasses that of anybody else. I was thinking about um, what's called an uh, internal guidance system. Have you ever heard of something like that? I know so, there are some people in our church who work for a company that makes these to go inside missiles. And uh, I don't know too much about it. One time I was having lunch with one of these gentlemen, and I tried to probe him, and you could tell he was changing the subjects on me, so, uh, which was right to do. But uh, you know how these things work, right? You put this little, I guess, computer board, and if I'm wrong, correct me, but you, you put this inside the missile, and you can literally direct that missile anywhere in the world to land and do its job simply because of that very small guidance system that's inside this missile. God puts his guidance system, namely himself, in his people's hearts. That's the radical difference between his old way of doing something and his new way of doing something since Jesus came. So today, I get to take us from verse uh, 21 in Matthew all the way till the end of the chapter, which is verse uh, 48. Now, that's a lot of passages. But if we work backwards and look at this kind of like a, a frame or a bookend, if Jesus started by the challenge of, you've got to have better righteousness Listen to how he ends this part of his sermon where he says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't know what you hear when you hear those little words, be perfect. Maybe you hear your parents when you were little correcting you or a teacher Whatever, it, it, it could be that you ha have, what, fear? Maybe you're a little paralyzed by, oh, no, I can't do it. Or, you're expecting too much of me, right? Nobody's perfect, we might say. But Jesus says it. He doesn't say, just try a little harder or be a little better. He says, be perfect. Well, could I, could I suggest that our response of fear or frustration is misplaced. As God's new humanity, he's not calling us to the impossible. He doesn't want us to be afraid. I mean, I mean think about it. If he says in verse 20, you've got to beat the Pharisees 
And then at the end, you've got to be perfect. And in the middle, which we're going to look at in just a minute, he's going to say, I tell you, here's how you should follow God. He's not saying, don't do it. Why would he say, I demand perfection, which nobody can do. So here are ways to do it. That, that, that doesn't make sense. What I'm saying is, when Jesus says, be perfect, he is telling us that we can achieve something. It doesn't mean that we're to become perfect in everything we do. It means that with our new internal guidance system, directing our hearts to obey God, we follow the perfect path laid out for us by Jesus. We strive for this ideal. We pursue this perfect goal. All the while, fully aware that complete perfection is not possible in this life. I mean, isn't, isn't that what you might do in sports or music or something where you want to achieve something? You set your goal really high, right? And then you work toward it. If you have mediocre goals, you're going to have mediocre results. And when Jesus says be perfect, he's not saying, well, you know, I know you really can't do it, so just give it up. Or, what I've heard some people say, you can't do it, I did it, and we'll remember that at the Lord's table in a moment. And I want to say, yes, that's true, but it's only because of what he has done that he has now planted his spirit in us that gives us the desire, the delight, and the ability to do it. So, are you ready to take a look at these? Um, it's, um, it's kind of a lofty goal here to try to do all six of these in one sermon. So rather than go deep on each one, I'm still going to fly high above them because I would rather you see what Jesus is saying about them all, and then maybe the Lord will move you to really go deep in one or more of these. So here's the way the first one of six starts, and it's about an Old Testament passage. Jesus starts, You have heard that it was said. And what he means by that is, to the Jewish people, remember what is written in the Torah, in the Bible, your Bible, our Old Testament. But I tell you, and then he says something else. You familiar with this kind of... Uh, Here's what you heard, but I say to you. Now, some people say, yeah, I'm really familiar with that. In fact, that's why I don't care about the Old Testament, because that seems to be old. Like, you know, I, don't, I, I like new things, not old things. Why should I mess around with the Old Testament? Even worse, like someone did in the early church, before the New Testament was even complete, he said, the God of the Old Testament is not the Jesus of the New Testament. 
His name was Marcion. And in those earliest days of the church, he literally compiled his own New Testament, and from those books, few books that didn't talk a lot about the Old Testament, he cut out portions of them that talked in a positive way about the God of the Old Testament. And all the Christian teachers and pastors at that time wrote how wrong that was. We have one Bible, and Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, and the God of Jesus is the same God that we worship today. Our Bibles are one story of redemption, not two. In fact, as I hold in my hands here, you can see the Old Testament is three-quarters of our Bibles. That's not the way to look at this. This is not a dichotomy, as if Jesus says, well, I'm starting over. You've heard it, but I'm going to really tell you the truth. That is not what Jesus is saying. Rather, he's saying, God said it, but through the years, it's been misheard. It's been misinterpreted like barnacles that start sticking onto ships that don't move too much. They need to be removed. I want to refresh your memory. This is what my father really meant when he said it. And so he's going to go back and say, listen to the heart of God here, and I am even going to go deeper into what it means to follow God. Now that you have new hearts, my people, my new humanity, will hear God's voice. Actually, what he's doing then is taking the commands in the Old Testament and kind of turning them upside down to see what is the foundation of them. Where are they coming from? Last week, Pastor John quoted Kevin DeYoung. It was so good, I've got to say it again. God's law is an expression of his grace because it's also an expression of his character. Commands show what God is like, what he prizes, what he detests, what it means to be holy as God is holy. See that? These are not just random commands. It's couched this way. Be holy, be perfect, because I am perfect. So in the big story of redemption, God is pulling people into his new kingdom, making them just like himself. That's a whole lot different than, yeah, I'm going to look good. I'm going to do good. I can check it off. It's done. You know the difference. I mean, if you have kids, grandkids, if you're a school teacher, maybe great-grandkids for some of you, you know the difference between, uh, hey, do this, please. I said, do it. Okay, it's done. Or, 
maybe that moment when you hear words that come and you say, my, that was really kind what you just said to your brother there. You know the difference? Or when you see your kids grow up and start to internalize what for many years you had always said from the outside should be true, and then you see it come from their inside. That's what Jesus is talking about. So now, let's take a high view of these six laws. Jesus could have picked 600. In fact, Jewish people say that there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. The first one, Jesus says in verse 21, you have heard it that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, that's the Aramaic Hebrew word for uh, like an insult, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So what is Jesus saying? Here's the command. You know it, right? It's part of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. Jesus says, if you take that command and Go inside of it. Turn it upside down. It's really not just talking about the action of murder, for sure it is, but it's talking about the intent, the imagination that wishes that person gone from your life. We told you that this series was going to be uncomfortable not just to the hearers, but to the speakers, am I right? Let me push in a little bit. I'm looking at someone who is guilty of hatred and anger. I'm looking at his hands, and I think I'm looking at the faces of everyone who is guilty here as well. Our new humanity says what? Not just don't, but Jesus says it in the next paragraph. Maybe I should read it. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, you leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. The heart of God is not one to sit and stew or to wait, but to go, to run. Like that father who looked and waited and then ran when his son came back. It's not just if you know that you have something against someone. Jesus pushes in even more what I just read. If you know that someone else has something that they're holding on to, maybe because you did it, then you go, and hopefully you'll meet each other on the way. 
That's what this Lord's table is all about, too. We are one body. And if there's anything that's keeping you from someone else, I hope that today you'll text them, email them, call them, meet them, and be reconciled. Now, that's just the first one. You, you, you feel the weight of this? I've got five more. Jesus does. So here we go. The second one reads in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, the command, the action, sexual unfaithfulness. Jesus pushes it inside to our imagination. This is difficult. Because we think, well, it's okay. If I don't do it, it's better, right, if I don't do it? Well, yeah, it is, but that doesn't mean that you're pleasing God or reflecting His glory. Well, what's His glory? What do you... God is a God who doesn't take advantage of people, doesn't use people for his own means. He is a God who gives his people the same kind of character that he wants, one of purity. The next one deals with divorce. Verse 31 it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must be given a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this one needs a little explanation, because back in the Old Testament, God never commanded divorce. In fact, he commanded no divorce. From the Garden of Eden, it was to be life forever with the same person. But Moses wrote into the law an allowance that if you're going to do it, at least write it down so that it's fair and just between both people. And what the Jewish people did, sadly, was to say, oh, well, if we write it down, okay, then we can write down any reason. And the Jewish people, by the time of Jesus, had compiled this whole list of little picky things that men could divorce their wives for. What Jesus is trying to do is to restrain, to constrict this evil. But he does say, except for sexual immorality. You can tell that this would require a lot more time to explain, right? So it's not like Jesus says, no, no divorce whatsoever. There is one reason that he states here. And so what he's trying to do is say, guard your heart from this. In the same way, oaths, <clears throat> and again, this may sound a little strange to us. I read verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, 
but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or the earth, it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head. Sounds funny, doesn't it? For you can't make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. God said in the Old Testament, be careful what you say. And the Jewish people took that idea of oaths and made this whole elaborate system of, well, if I swear by my hair on my head, uh, I can wiggle out of something because maybe I've lost some hair since I made that first promise. Or I mean, no, I know it sounds weird, but Jesus just cuts through all of that and says, don't take any oaths. Now, little caveat here, he's not talking about legal oaths or the court system or something like that. This is not to say that if you get called for jury duty, you're not supposed to say, no, nope, I'm a Christian, I don't swear to tell the truth or, you know, something like, no, this, no, Jesus is trying to say, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, be a person who is truthful always. You say, well, that's, that seems to be kind of an easy one, isn't it? Well, you think about it. How often you're tempted to fudge, shave a corner of the truth, make it fit your definition of truth. You say, oh, okay, well, but it's not that important, is it? It's hugely important because you as new humanity are reflecting who God is. God is a God of faithfulness and truth. When he says something, he will do it. He is a God who keeps all his promises. The next one. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Again, this is not talking about some sort of judicial system that stops trying to bring justice to the world. We're talking about personal retribution, personal offenses, personal comebacks. This one is a little harder, isn't it? Because it just feels so right. Sweet revenge. Oh, no, not revenge. I'm just getting what I deserve. And Christian, hear me. There's no rule book for this except what Jesus says. He says, 
No, when it comes to eye for eye, which was meant in the Bible to say there should be justice. If somebody takes out your eye, you don't take out two eyes, <laughs> only one eye. Equity and justice is what should rule in everything. But when it comes to getting underneath that to see what really is at the heart of God, is it okay to be just? Well, yeah, it's really good to be just. But sometimes, self-sacrifice in injustice is what godly people do because God does it again. When we have the bread and the cup in our hands in a few moments, nobody's talking about justice, but mercy. Jesus doesn't say, sin for sin, eye for eye, go for it. If you're looking for me or Jesus or someone else to tell you, well, then what, what do I do here? Um, let's start in my home. Yeah, and Paul does that. He says, husbands, love your wives. And he doesn't say, and now here's five things to do on Valentine's Day, which hasn't been invented yet. Uh, do this. Make sure you have a date every week. Make sure you... No. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I much prefer justice because I might win or I might point out the faults. I might feel better having hmm, the guilt removed. And Paul won't let you go there. Jesus won't let you go there. What does it look like in your life? I don't know. But somehow we have to live what the gospel means in our personal relationships. And finally, another way to say that is his last and sixth point in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor. And we've heard that around here, right, for a while. And hate your enemy. Well, you never read that in the Old Testament. That's one of those barnacles that got attached to the law of God. What's the logic there? Well, apparently they thought, if God says we're supposed to love people near us, I guess they're nice people, well, then we can hate people who we don't like. They are not our neighbors. And Jesus says, no. No way. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see what he does all the time? This is not a rule book. This is a reflection mirror. He says, God causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't the pagans do that? Jesus wants us to 
be perfect, therefore, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So, my question to you as I wrap this up is, do you, do you feel beat up? I hope not. Do you feel coaxed to a better life, a more reflective view of who God is and who you really are on the inside? Yeah. You would want to be treated this way, these six ways, wouldn't you? You'd love to be on the receiving end. We get to be on the giving end as well. Why? Because Jesus himself exemplified and fulfilled the heart of God's commands. He showed us what it's like to be perfectly reflecting God's glory. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. John Newton, author of Amazing Grace, at the end of his life wrote, I am not what I ought to be, and I am not what I want to be, and I am not what I hope to be, but still, I am not what I used to be, by the grace of God. I'm going to ask our deacons to come now, and Jim to join me at the table. Father, thank you for planting your spirit in our hearts. We pray now that you would feed us by the living bread, by our Lord Jesus Christ, as we partake of him. May your presence be close and feed our souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.